I forgot all the other noises. Hello, and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. This is very, this is a special Christmas episode. Why is it Christmas? It's just because it'll probably be released on Thursday before Christmas. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal! I did not expect us to be able to like record and release an episode this week, or else I might have done like a special Christmas music edition, but that didn't happen. <gasps> oh, so. that would have been cool, but yeah, who knew what yeah. would have happened? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to write a whole episode just to not have time to record it. So. I'm not reliable. <laughs> no, you're just busy. You could have just done it with Ajax. That would have been good. I would have listened to that. My two favorite boys. All right. Well, yeah. Merry Christmas. Follow us on social media, I guess. I, I haven't even posted our last episode, like, title card thing. So there's really no point following Don't us on follow there. follow us. But <laughs> <laughs> if you, like, if you're listening to this and I say something wrong, just that's the best way to, like, get in contact with us to correct us so we can bring back Correction Corner. So do that. Um, hope everyone has a great holiday season, whatever you celebrate. I hope you have a generally good time over the next week or so. I hope everyone's having a fantastic week. <laughs> okay. Now it is time for our podcast within a podcast. Mika is the host now. Mika is the host now. Yo, I'm so tired. Is that it? I just need to say it. <laughs> You have said it. Not publicly, I guess, but to me. I'm struggling. <laughs> it's okay. Today has been very nice. I don't know. I haven't thought about anything. I've just done. Which of your macarons were your favorite? Oh, the cursed macarons. I did love them. Um, my chocolate one wasn't bad, which I think is like a that real feat. That was my feat. favorite. Like I made a I made a mocha essentially macaron and chocolate macarons are like not easy to make and it worked and I was very happy about that. No orange ones really delicious. Pistachio ones are not worth it. It didn't even taste like pistachio. No. But Blake liked those. Those were his favorite. <sighs> There's so much effort. Tell me whether or not I should quit my job and just like, and just like become a a pastry chef. <laughs> Follow my dreams of being a pastry chef and a bar back, <laughs> and those will be my jobs. How? And I will be happy. W- will you? Because <laughs> do you remember how stressed and terrible it was making all those macarons? Now imagine that was your job every single day. I would have had more time to do it right. No, you wouldn't because you would have customers that would have a deadline that you have to get to. All right, I'll just do it for fun then. (laughs) Just fun where I get really, really anxious and sad. (laughs) It was fun to give them out. Now it's less fun to give them out because I'm scared that they're old and they taste bad. So my parents aren't going to get good ones. I mean, you ate them today. Did they taste bad? No. There you go. I don't remember what a macaron is supposed to be like anymore. <laughs> I, I'm just, I don't think I can look at them for another six months. I mean, as long as it tasted good, that's all that matters. This has been the macaron corner. Okay. I'm sorry. 
Anything else? Any other Mika's the host now tidbits? No. <laughs> All right. Mika no longer the host? No. No longer host. Okay. <laughs> now just sit and drink tea. And listen to a story about Blondie. I like Blondies. Maybe I should have made those instead. Yeah, that would have been good. It would have been easier. Would have been fitting for this episode. Yeah. Okay. Well, last week, it actually was last week this time, we talked about a really weird and interesting little genre called New Wave. Yeah, no one knows what it is. (laughs) Do you have any summarizing thoughts about that episode? It's new music. Yeah. That's all. It's very synth heavy, very kind of like electronic a little bit, kind of poppy. It's basically like if you take punk and add a synthesizer and make it like catchy melodies. Or just melodies. Yeah. (laughs) We also talked a little bit about MTV and the... That's right. We got to watch all those music videos. Oh my God. That was so fun. A big thing about New Wave is the prevalence of music videos and how that kind of like helps spread the genre. Yeah. And how video killed the radio star. Yeah. So we'll see a few more music videos in this episode. Yes. And then next week, I thought it would be fun to do, not next week, next time, whenever that happens to be. Yeah. Uh, we'll do a little bonus episode on MTV and how it came about and what it was and all that. That sounds fun. So that'll be cool. But today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite bands. Uh, It was a little bit hard to make a decision about which band to talk about. And people might question why I chose to talk about Blondie since they aren't exactly like the quintessential new wave band. Well, how can you have a quintessential new... Who is? Yeah, I know. Like, it didn't sound like there was a quintessential one because it's just, this is new music of right now. And of those bands, I bet you Blondie is pretty up there. Yeah. Uh, They didn't, like, define the genre, though, and they aren't the biggest band of this era. The genre has not been defined. (laughs) It'd probably make more sense to talk about, like, The Police or Talking Heads or someone like that. It's the sound of the police. (laughs) Whoop, whoop. (laughs) Yes, that's what they did. They that's went on the stage and did that. <laughs> uh, but I chose Blondie for a few reasons. The big one is that I just like them and I want to learn more about them and I can do whatever I want because I write the episodes. That's the big reason. That is like the most like aggressive I've ever <laughs> seen you. <laughs> it's that nine rage yeah. coming out. Uh, but also we've talked about a lot of guys the past several episodes and i wanted to talk about a female fronted band for a change also they got their start in punk and they kind of bridged that gap to new wave so they exemplify that kind of trajectory that we talked about last episode where new wave kind of grew up along with punk and then bands made that switch so we can talk about how they did that and so many bands in the genre were a one-hit wonder and they weren't so they have more of a story to tell than like the bugles who did Video killed a radio star. Then that I was basically it. I already forgot that that was the name of the band. <laughs> exactly. So Blondie has a little bit more of a story to tell. So, so that's why we're talking about. They're that. like bugles, like the instrument, like like little boy blue, or like, or like bugles, like the chip. I would guess the instrument. But what is a bugle? Isn't it like a little trumpet thing? I thought it was like twisty. Is it one of the twisty ones? I thought it was like a trumpet because it was like in uh, 
like military bands. Someone would have a little, like a bugle boy or something. Okay. I got to look it up now. Now I'm curious. Oh, this you look up? You always are like, why are you looking that up? When I'm trying to figure out where like is Uzbania is and its relation to Russia. But you're like, oh, it's important to know what a bugle is. This isn't even about the bugles. It's more that I trust myself to look it up and then quickly get back on topic. Whenever you look something up, then you're just on your phone for the next 10 minutes and I just have to wait because you don't pay attention. I pay plenty attention. I play the same amount of attention. The bugle is one of the simplest brass instruments, normally having no valves or other pitch-altering devices. All pitch control is done by varying the player's... Oh boy. Embosure? I don't know, but yeah, it's just like a little horn thing. It is twisty. Yeah, but it's also a horn. I thought you meant like it's an instrument you twisted to make no. it noise. I meant, is it twisty like that? Oh, I thought you meant like you twist it. But yes, it is like a twisty horn. Okay, anyway. That sounds difficult. It doesn't have any, you just. It's just loud. It just makes loud. You just have to like do the tone yourself. That's interesting. So what do you know about Blondie? Your shirt hurts my head. Your blondie shirt. I, I figured. <laughs> what else? Anything? No. Okay. Well, hopefully that'll change by the end of this. As is the case with most episodes where we talk about a band, we're going to go back in time a little bit with this one. So make sure your sound effects are ready. I've already practiced them. But also this one... I tried to talk about the whole band, but there's not a lot of info on some of the band members, so it's kind of just the story of Debbie Harry, which I'm fine with because she's cool. Okay. Angela Trimble was born on July 1st, 1945 in Miami. When she was three months old, she was adopted by a gift shop owner named Catherine and Richard Harry, who renamed her Deborah Harry. Debbie says that she was a love child and that her birth parents weren't married and put her up for adoption as soon as she was born. She was able to track down her birth mother, who was a concert pianist in the 80s, but she wanted nothing to do with Debbie. Her new parents lived in New Jersey, so that's where she grew up. A lot of her childhood was shaped by her adoption. It impacted her deeply. As most do. Yeah. She later wrote, quote, I guess somewhere in my subconscious, a scene was playing on a loop of a parent leaving me somewhere and never coming back, end quote. It gave her a deep passion to find her place in the world that a lot of younger people might not have had at her age. Growing up, Debbie said that she was a tomboy and would spend most of her childhood playing in the woods near her home. She eventually graduated with an Associate of Arts degree in 1965 before moving to New York City and working as a secretary at BBC's radio office for about a year. She also spent time working as a sec- or as a wa- waitress and a go-go dancer at a discotheque. Hell yeah. Before she started singing, she even tried her hand at being a Playboy bunny in the 60s. Oh my gosh. She's just kind of doing it all, just trying to find out what works for her. What do you mean tried your She sounds like she'd be a fantastic Playboy bunny. Like She was she was she like she was in Playboy, but she wasn't like she didn't become a Playboy star and like become a model or anything like that. She, I think she was just in an issue or two or something. I don't know. I don't know how Playboy works. 
Me neither. I can't imagine they got paid a lot of money in the 60s, though. During this time, she experienced some pretty rough things. She once dated a guy who held her at gunpoint and threatened to rape her because he thought she was cheating on him. Nice. Yeah. In 1968, Debbie began her singing career in a band very different than the one that she would become famous for. It was a folk band called The Wind in the Willows, and Debbie sang backing vocals. Hmm. There's honestly not really much known about this band. They only released one album, which was produced by her old friend, Artie Kornfeld, who would go on to be one of the producers of Woodstock. And apparently they recorded a second album that was never published, and no one really knows what happened to those tapes. So they weren't a big hit. Not much really happened. But here is one of their songs called Moments Spent. Good graphics. This was before the music video was popular. It's what Harry Potter. What you're looking for? What you're looking for? Did you see the I didn't think I was going to like this. <laughs> it's not terrible, Did but it's also like it doesn't stand out from the other stuff happening at the time. Did you hear the music of the wind? Did you cry when joy appeared? Where my friend and tell me where you Trippy. spent the last few moments in your pocket I think you can hear her in the chorus what did you see and yeah, you hear those backing vocals that's what Debbie. you're looking for what you're looking for did you feel alright well that's her first band she's really shining that's <laughs> her first foray into music didn't go great but in 1973, Debbie joined a band called the Stilettos, which was a stripped-down punk-style band. That is a badass name, and that sounds like it fits that sound really well. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited about this. <laughs> they were starting to gain a little bit of traction in the New York punk scene, even playing the famous CBGB club, which we talked about a lot in the punk episode. I don't know if you remember that. No. It was basically, it stood for country, bluegrass, and blues. It was just a little bar where a lot of the punk bands like the Ramones first started playing and where that punk scene kind of first took off. Here is their song called Anti-Disco. Stilettos. Whoa, 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 whoa. The band broke up one year after Debbie joined because only the female members were offered a recording contract. And I guess they just decided that they didn't want to do that if they couldn't bring, like, the band with them. So they just broke up. Probably the biggest thing to come out of this band was Debbie meeting a man named Chris Stein. They started dating and would, be, and would become stable partners as they formed a new group, which would eventually be called Blondie. All right, you ready to go back in time? Mm-hmm. 
This is the Hannah Montana vocals. Oh, okay. That was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I didn't expect that. I'm just, I'm just, you you're, know. You're branching out a little yeah. bit, trying new things. Yeah. This is the new wave. <laughs> okay. Version. <laughs> of our podcast. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Chris Stein was born to Jewish parents in 1950 in Brooklyn. As a kid, he wanted to be an Egyptologist, as we all do, when he grew up. Huh. But that all changed when his parents brought him his first guitar when he was 11. That's when his focus shifted to music and his teenage years became a little bit more turbulent. He was expelled from his high school for having long hair. Uh, what? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a sc- school is about controlling young minds and not teaching yeah, children? Uh-huh, what? I'm guessing he just racked up like dress code after dress code violation to where they just had to kick him out, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, he got expelled for having long hair. And then his father passed away from a heart attack when he was a teenager. Oh, goodness. So yeah, rough couple years for him. By the early 70s, New York was swept up in glam rock. And that movement was spearheaded by bands like the New York Dolls. And Chris kind of took note of that scene happening. He started looking for a glam rock band to join. And he didn't have to wait long. He stumbled upon the stilettos and soon joined as their guitarist. And then he started dating Debbie Harry. In those early days, they did have some very tough times. And just real quick, going to give a bit of a content warning for sexual assault before the story. So just skip ahead like a minute if you don't want to hear that. Because they had no money, they had to live in a seedy part of town. One night, someone broke into their apartment and held them at knife point. He tied them up before ransacking the place. The man then piled up the guitars and Chris's cameras but before he left, he raped Debbie while Chris was still tied up. Good Lord. Yeah. So this is now twice that this woman has been. One time she was just threatened. And then this <sighs> time she actually. Yeah. Yeah. She's. she's Yikes, had a man. <laughs> Debbie also claims to have been to have narrowly avoided being killed during this time. She says she was alone on the streets of New York one night trying to hail a cab when a man in a white car pulled over and offered to give her a ride. When she got in, she noticed what? What? uh, Debbie. (laughs) Debbie. What? She's fearless. I don't know. Uh, uh. When she got in, she noticed how hot the car was. So when she went to roll the window down, she noticed it was stripped bare. There wasn't a door handle on the passenger side. So Debbie started trying to frantically open the door using the outside handle. She says, quote, as soon as he saw that, he tried to turn the corner really fast, and I spun out of the car and landed in the middle of the street. Then the man drove away. She didn't really think much about that incident. You know, why? why? Why would you? What? <laughs> For a while, until 15 years later, she saw the man's face on a magazine cover. It was Ted Bundy. Yeah, saw that coming. <laughs> But it's worth noting that this story has been questioned quite a bit. I guess that she wasn't really his M.O. She was. Yeah? Yeah, he liked young girls, basically. Who am I thinking of? Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer was strictly men. But yeah, Ted Bundy was young females. Uh, But it's worth noting that Ted Bundy was known to be active in Florida at the time that Debbie said this happened, not in New York City. But Debbie has always maintained that the story is true. 
So we're gonna believe the victim in this one scenario. Yeah, <laughs> like, why would you? So, back to the music side of things. Chris and Debbie left the Stilettos and decided to start their own band with the drummer and bassist from the Stilettos. They originally named the band Angel and the Snake. How do you feel about that? Not as good. Okay. But they changed it a few months later to Blondie, which was taking the name from the cat calls that truckers would yell at Debbie as she walked on the street. Very good. After she had recently bleached her hair. Very like, good. Very like good. Naturally a brunette. Good she vibes. This is great. Throw it right back <laughs> at them. We we are taking it back. Debbie said, quote, Chris and I tried out a few band names. One was Angel and the Snake, but I wasn't sure it was easy to remember. One day I was walking across Houston Street and someone yelled Blondie at me. I thought, geez, that's quite easy to remember, end quote. <laughs> so, so they were Blondie. I love it. I honestly actually really love it. So by 1975, the bassist that had joined them from the st- Stilettos left to join the legendary band Television and was replaced by a guy named Gary Valentine. So we're going back in time for a second. Ooh. We'll talk about Gary just very briefly. He was born Gary Lockman. I was just about to ask if his <laughs> real last name was Valentine. In New Jersey in 1955. When he joined Blondie, he popularized their 60s retro look and even wrote their first single. Oh, fun. He recorded their first album with them before leaving to form his own band. He moved to L.A. and did some work in music there before moving to London and working as a full-time writer. So he's not around a lot, but he did a lot to define the early style of Blondie, so it was worth pointing him out a little bit. Thank you, Mr. Valentine. Also in 1975, the original drummer of Blondie, a band named Billy O'Connor who I can't really find anything at all about, but I think he was a chemist. What? (laughs) He went on to be a chemist. He was replaced by a drummer named Clem Burke. C-L-E-M-B-U-R-K-E. Clem Burke. All right, going back in time. Oh, boy. (laughs) Getting wild with it now. Clem Burke was born in New Jersey in 1955. He rose to prominence as one of the drummers for his hometown's biggest cover band called Total Environment. That's not a good name. Oh, just wait for this one, though. Oh, no. He also played in a band called Sweet Willie Jam Band. That one's better. <laughs> he drew influence from some of the biggest names of rock drumming, like Keith Moon from The Who and Ginger Baker from Cream. He was only 18 years old when he joined Blondie. When the original bassist left Blondie, Clem was instrumental in keeping the band together. Debbie and Chris contemplated just ending it, but Clem was like, no, we got something here. Let's keep going. Clem is also known as Elvis Ramon because he was a stand-in drummer for the Ramones for a few gigs before they realized that that wasn't going to work. (laughs) They moved (laughs) on from him. I think this was when Blondie was on a break or something. I don't know. In June of 1975, Blondie had their chance to record for the first time. A man named Alan Betrock, who was a regular at CBGB and had completely immersed himself in the punk scene, produced their first demo records. Originally, he wanted to manage them, but he lacked confidence in their musical abilities, so he managed a band called The Marbles instead. How'd The Marbles do? Not great. Wow. At least not not Blondie level. Of Bummer success. for him. Anyway, yeah. Here is one of those earliest demos called Once I Had a Love, and I think you'll recognize this song.
They are all so hot. This is also sounds very rough. Like, this does not sound great. Yeah, I don't think that that guy did a great job. Yeah. They polished the song and turned it into a massive hit. But. listen to the finished version later so that'll be all for that right now blondie realized that they needed to fill out their sound a little bit more so they brought in a keyboardist back in time uh-oh she's got to think about this one it's hard because i'm trying to also do like the boo boo do do but like without the boo 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 without like the buzz sound and instead just going like whoa whoa Whoa, okay. <laughs> Short and sweet, all right. Jimmy Destry was born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1954. His dad was a novelist, a screenplay writer, and also wrote advertising copy to support his family. His uncle was a drummer in a popular rock band, so Jimmy grew up around art and music quite a bit. He would eventually drop out of high school to form his first band, called The 86 Proof, before joining up with Blondie in 1975. What do you think about the 86 proof as a name? Average. Eh, okay, Very mid. Along with Debbie and Chris, he was a principal songwriter for the group. During this time, Blondie were regulars at CBGB. In 1976, they met a guy named Richard Gotteherer. I'm sorry? Gotteherer. I'm sorry. It's G-O-T-T-E-H-R-E-R. Gotteherer. Gautier. Well, <laughs> that's G-O-T-Y-E. Uh, same thing. Okay. So they met Godier, who was putting out a compilation album of the New York sound, presumably just kind of like the burgeoning punk scene. Debbie Harry was very interested in being on that compilation, and Godier said, quote, <laughs> I, I told her I wasn't just going to take anybody. I went to the band's studio, and as soon as they started playing, I was grinning from ear to ear, end quote. I can't believe they're calling him Godier. <laughs> <laughs> this is so disrespectful to this man and his name. Godier signed them to an independent label called Private Stock, and they put out their first album in 1976, just called Blondie. The album was not a commercial success at first, but they were regulars at a few local bars like CBGB and Max's Kansas City, which was where Debbie worked as a waitress for a time. And they started to grow their following just kind of like through their local gigs and stuff. I love that. Debbie's looks really kind of helped them gain attention, as you might expect. Marky Ramone once said, quote, When Blondie was playing, I would always make sure I was in the first or second row to look at Debbie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just expected, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Debbie said about those early days playing in the now iconic bars, quote, When we first started playing CBGB, it really wasn't the scene that it would later become. It was just a local bar, and we'd get paid with a couple of beers, end quote. Their first album, released on private stock, featured a song called In the Flesh, which eventually hit number two in Australia. Godier said it was the first indication that Blondie could sell music, but it was kind of an accidental hit. That wasn't their single, and the music television program that they sent it to played the B-side instead of the song that they actually wanted played. 
And Chris said they still thank them to this day for that mistake. That's wild. Here is the music In the Flesh. Hour show. And tonight we're featuring one hour of Blondie. And kicking off this exciting program, we've gone back into our library to a very early appearance of Blondie. You may remember this. In the Flesh. I think you can, considering they were a part of like that early punk scene, you can probably tell why they didn't want that to be their first single. It's yeah. not punk at all. It's very slowed down and kind of like a ballad. In 1977, unhappy with how things were going, they bought back their contract with private stock and signed with a British label called Chrysalis, who promptly re-released their debut album. Later that year, they caught a massive break when Iggy Pop and David Bowie heard their debut album and invited them to open for their tour. That's so great. Yeah. And if you'll remember, Iggy Pop was a member of the Stooges, which was like the first punk band. I definitely remember that. I knew you didn't. That's why I told you. I I absolutely know all of the early pop, early punk bands. (laughs) Later that year... Gary Valentine left the group to form his own band, so their second album, called Plastic Letters, was recorded as a four-piece. The album was heavily promoted throughout England and Europe, and their single, Dennis, which was a cover song, reached number two in the UK charts. Richard Godier, the producer, said, quote, On the second album, there was a cover of Denise by New York doo-wop group Randy and the Rainbows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You knew that? Uh-huh. Okay. You're you're in with the doo-wop sound? Absolutely. Okay. But which they switched to Dennis. Debbie sang part of it in French. I didn't even know if the French was real, but it became their <laughs> first hit in the UK. End quote. Here is Dennis. Yeah, this one's not very 
Denis, I guess. I mean, saying Dennis, but it's Denis, I guess. It's very French. Blondie's third album is the one that shot them into stardom. It was called Parallel Lines and was released in 1978. The album really deviated from their punk roots, and their song, Heart of Glass, which was a disco-infused song, became a massive hit, which really annoyed fans of their punk beginnings. Yeah, they literally, she had the the song with the yeah. other band about disco picks. <laughs> For the album, they tried to work with an Australian producer who was big in the British pop scene named Mike Chapman, but Chapman found the band impossible to work with. He called them the worst band he's ever worked with in terms of musical ability. He said he could barely work with Chris Stein because he was too stoned during the sessions. He's such a hater. What's this guy's <laughs> deal? He encouraged him to write songs instead of playing the guitar. He said Jimmy Destry was far better at writing songs than playing the keys, and Clem Burke couldn't keep a beat. Because of all of that, Chapman spent a long time with the band just trying to make them better musically. But that frustrated the band. The new bassist became so frustrated at Chapman's perfectionism that he threw a synthesizer at Chapman. <laughs> Chapman later said about this experience, quote, Blondie were tough in the studio, real tough. None of them liked each other, except Chris and Debbie, and there was so much animosity. They were really, really juvenile in their approach to life, a classic New York underground rock band, and they didn't care about anything. They just wanted to have fun and didn't want to work too hard getting it. End quote. Don't we all? We just want to have fun and not work too hard. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> Chapman did say that Debbie was an incredible vocalist, but she was also very moody and emotional. So oh, so that means that she's impossible <laughs> to work with. No, it meant he had to be careful with what he asked of her. Despite being given six months to record the album, they finished it in six weeks. Their label was not enthusiastic about what they heard and wanted the band to start again, but Chapman convinced them that the singles would be hits. Probably just because he didn't want to go back into Honestly, the studio with them. Now who doesn't want to work hard, Chapman? <laughs> but it turns out Chapman was right. The album went to number six in the U.S. and topped the U.K. album chart. Heart of Glass, the single, topped both the UK and the US singles charts. It was a reworking of the song that we played earlier mm. from their first demo sessions. Klim later said that reworking of the song was inspired by Kraftwerk, the German band that we talked about last week with the robots. I like them. And Staying Alive. He said the combination of those two inspired the reworking of Heart of Glass. Hmm. He said he tried to copy the drumming of the Bee Gees in the song. The music video that accompanied the song started to set Debbie apart as a celebrity while the rest of the band was kind of largely ignored. Here is Heart of Glass. It already sounds better, just from the first few notes. <laughs>
I'm I'm obsessed. <laughs> How are we not paying attention to the rest <laughs> of the band? They're amazing. Heart of glass. She's just like playing with her shaw, and they are being <laughs> ridiculous and adorable. Yeah. They followed that single up with a more aggressive rock-oriented song called One Way or Another, which I'm sure you know. I do know that yeah. one. Everyone knows that one. The song, lyrically, was inspired by Debbie's experience with a stalker in the early 70s. Yeah, that explains why it's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> According to Debbie, her ex-boyfriend's constant calls and following her forced her to move out of New Jersey and into New York City. This poor woman. Yeah. This was taking place while she was a member of the Stilettos. And her Stiletto bandmate said that it was freaking all of them out, especially Chris Stein, who was dating Debbie at the time. Debbie said about the song, quote, I was actually stalked by a nut job, so it came out of a not-so-friendly personal event. But I tried to inject a little bit of levity into it to make it more lighthearted. I think in a way that's a normal kind of survival mechanism. You know, just shake it off, say one way or another, and get on with your life. Everyone can relate to that, and I think that's the beauty of it, end quote. And that also seems like the approach Debbie takes to all of the traumatic things that happen in her life. She's very much just like, like, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't comment on it, but it kind of has the attitude of, if I don't make it a big deal, it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. So she, like, even with all of the the stuff that happened when they got robbed earlier. She was just kind of like, she made a joke about it and was like, I was mostly just sad that he took the guitars. And it was like, she's just trying to downplay it so that she can survive it. Yeah. Is what it sounds like a lot of her trauma is. The song initially did not do as well as Heart of Glass, only reaching number 24 in the charts. It was never released as a single in the UK, but it did end up charting there in 2013 when One Direction covered it. What? (laughs) (laughs) Here is one way or another. Oh, it's so fun, though. Yeah, 
that's fun. <laughs> it's, so, it's just so such a funny thing. There's <laughs> just a silly little haha moment. There's it's like a really weird mix of like the lyrics are like, oh, this is bad, but like it's such like a little peppy, like bouncy yeah. song. It's just so weird how they did it. Following the massive success of Parallel Lines, the band released three more albums between 1978 and 1982. Their fourth album performed well and was received well by critics, but it didn't reach the level of Parallel Lines. The one single did rise above to become another number one hit. It was produced and composed by an Italian musician with lyrics by Debbie. It became the theme song for the movie American Gigolo in 1980, and, partly because of that, skyrocketed to number one for six consecutive weeks. The Italian producer originally asked Stevie Nicks to perform the song, but she couldn't because of record label deals. So he turned to Debbie. He gave her an instrumental and asked her to write lyrics for it. She said it took only a couple of hours, and it's told through the eyes of the film's protagonist, who is a male prostitute. They used session players during the recording, which originally annoyed the band, but since it was super mm-hmm. successful, they just kind of took it in stride. Here is that song called Call Me. Another one you've probably heard. No, I don't know this one. I think you will. Actually no, I don't know it. This is I've not heard music. Ring a bell. I'm so jealous. I can't do a cartwheel. Did a casual little cartwheel. No big deal. that song right i don't know what bit you're doing about not knowing music no i don't know music (laughs) i'm just assuming you've heard that (laughs) (laughs) their filth their fifth album contained two more number one singles and hit number seven in the charts one song called rapture was the first song to feature rapping that hit number one in the u.s that one is such a good song (laughs) you don't know that one (laughs) it's so good chris stein said quote years later you God and Inspect a Deck from the Wu-Tang Clan once told me that Rapture was the first rap song they ever heard as kids. That's mind-boggling, end quote. I do think it's really funny that Blondie was the first band to have rap in a song hit number one. Like, that's, just, that's so weird. The song featured call-outs to Grandmaster Flash and Five, Fab Five Freddy, who were like godfathers of the early rap scene. And it just kind of showcased that Debbie and Chris were still in touch with what was happening in the art scene in New York. That's so fun. Yeah. Fab Five Freddy said, quote, I knew Chris and Debbie from the downtown art scene and would visit their apartment. Chris had the best marijuana and Debbie would offer me a sandwich. 
(laughs) (laughs) It was funny to see the Marilyn Monroe of her generation being domestic. They were supporters of what was happening in the Bronx before anyone else. End quote. In 1981, they took a brief break while Debbie released a solo album. The rest of the band members also kind of did other things with other musicians during this time. At this time, the bassist who had replaced Gary Valentine in 1977 sued the band because he wasn't being utilized in their album enough. That's just like, is there really not another way to handle that? I don't understand suing your band. I just think most of them just didn't get along by this point. They didn't like each other. Like, under what grounds? Maybe he had a contract with it? I don't know. I'm sure his contract didn't say that he had to be featured in like <laughs> two and a half out of every three minutes. Like, <laughs> but how are you expecting to win that case? I don't understand. Despite suing them, he somehow stayed in the band. Uh, uh, <laughs> why? <laughs> Leave. You don't like it. Though Debbie said that he wasn't used at all for the recording of their next album. <laughs> that is petty as hell. I love it so much. <laughs> Debbie also started an acting career during this brief break. When they finally came back with an album called The Hunter in 1982, they experienced some commercial failure for basically the first time in their career. The cracks that were always there in the band really started to show. They were supposed to go on an international tour, but it was canceled early on. The lack of commercial success contributed to a financial stress, drug abuse by members of the band reached an all-time high, and no one was buying tickets to their shows. But the real breaking point came when Chris Stein was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness called pemphigus, which is an autoimmune disease. With all of that happening, the band officially split up, with the announcement coming in September of 1982. For a while, Debbie and Chris, who were still a couple, retreated from the public eye while Debbie tried to nurse Chris back to health. But their financial problems continued to pile up. Chris owed something like $1 million, and they were forced to sell their house to cover debts that the band incurred. Holy cow. Yeah. Drug abuse was also becoming a major problem for both of them. Debbie said that she used heroin to blank out parts of her life that were too hard or when she was dealing with depression. She eventually got clean because she said it was a drag to try and find the drugs herself. She said, quote, It was kind of a full-time occupation and a waste of time. It became unpleasant. Luckily for me, I was able to handle the withdrawal, end quote. Dude. She, I, it, that's, I think that's just another case of her being flippant. Like, I don't think it was probably much harder than she made it. Like, she just made it out to be, it wasn't a big deal. It just got to be a pain in the neck to have to go try and find the heroin. So I just quit. <laughs> it, was like, it was probably way more difficult than that. But maybe not. I don't know. Debbie and Chris officially split up in 1987, and Debbie moved downtown. She later said that she felt like she was having a mental breakdown because of all of the stress she was under. Though they had broken up, the two remained great friends and music partners. Debbie is even the godmother of Chris's kids. While Debbie was taking care of Chris and out of the public eye, Madonna had kind of risen up to take her spot as kind of like this pop icon. She, I mean... One blonde for another. Exactly, yeah. Like, no one's going to notice the difference. Yeah. <laughs> so when Chris had recovered, she tried to restart her solo career, but found it pretty difficult to kind of break back into that public eye. But her two solo albums did help keep the band in the public eye, as well as new bands who were inspired by them, like No Doubt gaining kind of some success. No Doubt was Gwen Stefani's mm-hmm. original band. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Didn't know if you knew that. I know music. <laughs> Do you now? Yeah. You didn't earlier. So. Yeah. I'm an expert. It's a weird bit. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> In 1996, Debbie and Chris started trying to reunite the band with the original lineup of Clem Burke, Gary Valentine, and Jimmy Destry. But former members Nigel Harrison and Frank Infante successfully sued to prevent them from using the name Blondie. Eventually, in 1997, the original lineup did reunite and played a few shows, as well as releasing a cover of an Iggy Pop song. In 1999, they released their first new album called No Exit, which hit number 18 in the charts. By this point, Gary Valentine had left the group again, so they were a four-piece. I don't think Gary ever really had his heart in it, like he had moved on to other stuff. Exactly 20 years after their first number one hit in the UK, the song Maria became their sixth number one hit in England. Destry wrote the song while reminiscing about his high school days. It's a really good song. It's really beautiful. Well, here it is. So you get to hear it for probably the first time. No. I could sing it right now. Okay, go for it. It's from West Side Story. It's it's not West Side Story. I just had a girl (laughs) named Maria. Here is Maria. She moves like she don't care. With an older but still iconic Debbie Hurt. Sorry, but that was the same melody. In 2004, Jimmy Destry left the band to get his drug problem in check. Go, Jimmy. After a successful stint in rehab, he was not invited back into the band. Well, that's rude. (laughs) So, Debbie, Chris, and Clem were the only official members. Since then, they've released four new albums and continue to tour extensively. Here is a single from their latest album called Fun, which was released in 2017. (laughs) Seriously? I'm obsessed. I don't like this song as much.
like it. It's not nearly as bad as a lot of the older rock bands' new songs they put out. It's not my favorite, but it's just kind of like, it's fun. script i can't believe that they're still touring yeah they're still i think they played nashville pretty recently i didn't know that yeah and i think they're touring with a member of another iconic band i can't remember who it was but some band we've talked about recently they're like guitarist or drummer or something is touring with them maybe the ramones maybe the sex pistols i can't remember but one of them anyway that's blondie we should try and see them. Yeah, whenever they come back through. I think I've said Parallel Lines is probably my top 20 favorite albums of all time. I really like it a lot. That's so cool. I don't think I even played like my favorite songs from that album for you. So. What are your favorite songs? I really like the opening song called like Hanging on the Telephone. I'll see if I can find it. Do you want to get some tater tots after this? <laughs> sure. Here's Hanging on the Telephone. It was their first, the first song on it, and then they have Picture This, which is really good, too. Heart of Glass is also great. I like how she says Hall and Wall. It's just very New Jersey. So while this is playing, what do you think about Blondie? How do you feel about their story? Story isn't the most entertaining thing, but the music and the vibe is just top-notch. Yeah. I feel like Debbie Harry is just iconic. I just love all of them. <laughs> I wish that they were friends. All right. Well, that's Blondie. So next episode, we're going to do a bonus episode on MTV. And then we're doing another special. Why is this special? I know how you feel about the way I organize things. But I reserve specials for like artists that I think transcend just being like good and important artists and are like... I don't know, massive in the row, like Bing Crosby. Okay. We did a special on him and the Beatles. Like, those are the two specials we've done so far. That's it? Yeah, because those are the two mm-hmm. artists that I think are like... We've talked about a lot of important artists. Sure, but none reached the same heights that the Beatles and Bing Crosby did. So I don't know who we're talking the about. The next one we're doing is Michael Jackson. <gasps> <laughs> so we do MTV and then the Michael Jackson special. Stop. Yep. Oh my god, I'm so excited. And then we're going to move into the, because I think that's a good bridge into the 80s, because Michael Jackson just kind of like was all time, but was very popular in the 70s and into the 80s. So I think it's a good move out of the 70s and into the 80s. I'm so excited. And then I don't know what we're talking about because I haven't planned it yet, but those are the two that are written. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Any any last thoughts on Blondie? I think I'm going to dye my hair bleach blonde of all these women, too. Okay, go for it. <laughs> we'll have truckers yell blondie at you, and I then you'll start wait. a very successful band. I, I cannot wait for <laughs> truckers to yell blondie at me. That sounds like the highlight yeah. of my life. Tater tot time. Tater tot time. Bye. Merry Christmas. Merry Hot Christmas, holidays. everyone. Merry Christmas. Merry, Merry Chrysler. Quiz- Merry Chrysler. <laughs>